Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to Hollywood Party. I'm glad you made it back. This is our 20th party. Whoop. And we're definitely going to need to keep Lana Turner and Rita Hayworth away from this guest because he just can't help himself. And I'm sure these girls won't be able to resist Tony Curtis. He might be charming and good looking, but will that be enough to make it on our list? Grab a drink and join the party. Tony Curtis's real name is Bernard Swartz. He was born June 3, 1925 in New York City to Manny and Helen Swartz, who were both immigrants from Hungary. Manny came to America to become a performer, but never really learned English, so he was a tailor. Tony said his dad was super sweet, but unambitious. Yeah, buddy. Helen felt tied down by her marriage. Manny had cheated on her, and she was raised watching her father beat the hell out of her mother and lock her outside overnight. So Helen didn't really like men because why would she? This was a problem because she only ever had sons. Tony only spoke Hungarian at home and had no clue he even lived in the United States before he started school. He said he had a very thick Hungarian accent that then morphed into an extremely thick Bronx accent. His brother Julius was born in 1929, and they all lived behind their dad's tailor shop in one room for everything. Sleeping, eating, cooking, bathroom, fun. Sometimes things were so bad that the family got kicked out onto the street and had to sleep in abandoned buildings. Tony and Julius were sent to live in an orphanage for a while in the early 30s because his parents just couldn't afford to keep them. Tony started wetting the bed around this time, so he was like totally aware of how bad things were. His teeth were all rotten and some kid hit him in the head with a baseball bat, so he was deaf in one ear because the doctors and dentists were too expensive, so he just had to stay that way. He said the neighborhood he grew up in was super rough, but it wasn't so bad for him because if people didn't know his last name, he could pass as Italian, German, French. Basically, he was racially ambiguous. But there were a lot of little shithead boys who would attack Tony and his friends because they were Jewish. So Tony's friends would collect old milk bottles and condoms, pee into them, and then throw them at the little white supremacist boys. Gross, but they're baby Nazis, so toss pee on their heads. That's totally fine with me. One day, while Tony was out playing with his buddies, he told his little brother to get lost and let the big boys play. When Tony got home, Julius wasn't there, and a neighbor came running over and said, there's a boy, he's been hit by a truck, could it be Julius? A cop rolled up and said, we need someone to come down to the hospital and ID this kid. So Tony's parents sent him to do it. He was 12 years old, like A-plus parenting skills by the Swartzes. They're freaking awful. It was Julius. Tony sat with him for a while and talked, but Julius had no idea what was going on. I'm not going to describe what Tony saw. On my blog, I linked a BBC interview with him speaking to a psychologist about this 70 years later, and he goes into it in depth. But it was something that a 12-year-old should not have to see. His parents went the following day, and his mom came screaming home in hysterics, saying that Julius had died. They had one more kid, Robert, in 1940. He and Tony were 15 years apart, and Tony joined the Navy in 1943, so they just weren't super close close. He started as a signalman and then worked on a submarine because he loved Cary Grant in Destination Tokyo. He really didn't go into much of his wartime stories. Oh wait, yes he did. He had almost three chapters of him reminiscing about jizzing in his pants, literally, 
and the different hookers he frequented during the war. What is it with old Hollywood men thinking, one, they are special for being super horny, two, why do they think their fans want to hear about them like yanking it in an alley when they were 13? I feel like this is when an editor should step in and say, hey, less of this, more of the good stuff. Come on. So, when he came back from the war, he used the GI Bill to study drama at the new school. Members of his class were Walter Matthau, Harry Belafonte, and B. Arthur. Tony did one summer in the Catskills, and then in 1948, Universal sent for him. When he got on his flight out west, he chats with this guy who, in Tony's mind, looks like a gangster. The guy asks, why are you going to LA? Well, I'm under contract to Universal. Did you see any other studios? Well, Warner Brothers, everybody wants to get out of their contract. Fox is looking for Tarzan, and MGM wants musicals, so no. This guy and Tony chat the entire ride out to LA, and the guy asks, hey, do you want to ride into town? They get into the dude's limo, which drops the guy off at home first, and then he tells the chauffeur to take Tony wherever he wants to go. Then he says to Tony, my name is Jack Warner. If they ever drop you at Universal, come see me at Warner Brothers, and I'll change your name to Tyrone Goldfarb. According to Tony, all the moguls loved him because he was a quote, good looking Jewish kid, which I totally believe because we all know these old boys would clock you if you look too Jewish. He even got invited to Edie Goetz's parties early on and remembered LB bitching about how TB was a major problem. Universal was very aware of Tony's accent, so they sent him to elocution classes at MGM. They put marbles in his mouth, he swallowed them, obviously. A plus student. He came into Universal around the same time as Rock Hudson. There was no competition between the two. They went for totally different parts and they got along really, really well. Tony's first movie was Crisscross with Burt Lancaster, who loved to screw with Tony. Like, Burt moved all of Tony's stuff out of his apartment and changed the locks. Then, one day in the sauna, Burt talked about this starlet who he knew Tony was messing around with, and he said, oh yeah, you know she's got the clap, right? So Tony starts freaking out because he's starting to get this burning sensation. That's because Burt soaked Tony's towel in eucalyptus oil. So everyone on the lot after that knew Tony was really easy to pull prank on. Tony's third movie was with Barbara Stanwyck and he played a bellboy with one line. He was pacing backstage, like doing it a million different ways. And the director came in and gave him advice that if any of you are actors, maybe it will be helpful. He said, all you want is the tip. This became Tony's motto, just be a little better than what's expected of you. He did attend the actor's studio on Sunset Boulevard once. He truly hated method acting. He said the only good thing about acting schools was being able to hang around other actors. Jack Lemmon said this of Tony's acting. He could have just been the beautiful, young, leading man, handsome and charming as hell with a great personality, sensitive, all those qualities he has, but he didn't. He wanted to be a good actor and he was the only guy I knew who learned his craft successfully, literally learning how to act on film. No one else comes to my mind who did this. Tony was very honest by saying that his brain was in his dick. In his early days at Universal, he said he had sex with Yvonne DiCarlo, Lily Munster, and hold on to your butts, Zazu Pitts. He clearly wasn't very discriminating. Obviously, girls loved him, like they were screaming, ripping his clothes off because he was beautiful. He loved the attention that was never a problem for him. Universal was putting him in swashbuckling movies and people thought this guy, he's the next Douglas Fairbanks. Tony met Janet Lee at a cocktail party at RKO. She was in Jet Pilot, which was basically Hell's Angels 
set in the Cold War. That movie was completed in 1950 and released seven years later. Why? Because it was a Howard Hughes movie, and that's who Janet was chatting with when Tony first saw her. Janet was discovered by Norma Shearer and put under contract at MGM in 1947. When she and Tony really started dating, MGM hated it. So they eloped to New York in 1951 and honeymooned to Paris. Even though the studios didn't want this marriage, they were super quick to capitalize on it with Houdini. Tony learned all of Houdini's actual tricks and was so good, he was inducted into the Magician Society in America and Japan. I am not a magician, but that sounds like it's a big deal. Tony and Janet were the elite of the milkshake set. Tony says there was no bigger couple than them until Liz and Dick. Okay, sure. Anyways, he and Janet ended up doing five films together. Lou Wasserman was representing him at the time, and he was responsible for getting Tony into trapeze with Burt Lancaster. Tony did such a good job, he started harassing Burt into giving him a juicier part. Burt had a production company at the time, so that is how Tony got into the sweet smell of success, which was not a success in America because it's pretty much Citizen Kane, but this time based on Walter Winchell, who is a hot pile of trash in the first place. And he still had some pull in the media, obviously he was not happy about this, so the movie had no Oscar nominations because this is the year of Peyton Place and Sayonara. After that, Tony's career really starts going at a nice clip. He does three movies with Kirk Douglas. The first was The Vikings, of course. Why wouldn't a Viking have a thick ass accent like that? Tony's production company co-produced it, Kurt Lee. Everybody was trying to hop on the Desilu, like combine our names together for a production company train. No one's gonna be Desilu, just calm down. Tony was so adamant about doing the Defiant Ones, he helped raise money to be able to do the movie. I mean, it was a movie about black and white guys chained together in the 1950s, like I get it, no one wants to do it at that time. He also insisted Sidney Poitier get top billing alongside with him. Sidney said that was the most generous act he ever received from an actor in his entire life. Although Tony did hang out with a rat pack, Lou Wasserman wouldn't let him do any movies with them because Tony's career was going in a different direction, which is a very nice way of saying he was better than that. The first time Tony worked with Natalie Wood was in a movie with Frank Sinatra on King's Go Forth. He and Natalie did three films together and he said that he thought her sister Lana was prettier, but did anything ever happen with Natalie? This is what Tony said. After she separated from RJ, there were times when we ran into each other and something was on the verge of happening, but I'm getting into a delicate area here. The whole matter of what was called crudely the fucking privileges. So he doesn't really give us an answer. Thanks. He also did not consider her to be a major star. He categorized that as Liz Taylor and Marilyn Monroe. That's it. Do you agree with him? Is she not a major star? Speaking of Marilyn, let's get into all the some like it hot business. Originally, Bob Hope and Danny Kaye were lined up to make it with Mincy Gaynor. Then Sinatra got thrown into the mix, then that didn't happen at all. But I mean, thank God, right? Because that movie is pretty much close to perfect. Billy Wilder had a drag queen, they were known as female impersonators then, come in to teach Tony and Jack Lemmon how to act like women. Tony said that he wore a 36D bra and that he made his character, Josephine, act like Grace Kelly, Zazu Pitts, and his mom. I don't know that that comes across at all to me, but okay. Jack Lemmon said that he became his mom as well, and I think I can speak for everyone. If that is the case, then Jack Lemmon's mom would definitely be an amazing party guest. Like Daphne and Osgood Fielding, couple goals. Perfect. Tony and Marilyn had been friends when they were baby stars. Tony wrote three autobiographies, one in 1993, then 2008, and 2009. In the 1993 book, he straight up said, nothing 
happened between him and Marilyn because she was annoying to work with, he didn't like the Strasbergs, no one did, and of course, he said kissing her was like kissing Hitler super cute. A decade later, when he's writing his next book, Tony says that he got Marilyn pregnant while they were making this film. He says Arthur Miller's dong didn't work, so they had a thing. Tony said his own marriage was bad at the time, yet Jamie Lee was born during this time period? Uh, what? I had read Tony's autobiography years ago. Then I read about this miscarriage story in George Cukor's book, and finally, Tony talks about it in his later autobiographies, so it seems like this is something that probably did happen. Obviously, it was a miscarriage situation, but I don't think the world was really ready for how smoking hot that kid would have been. Think about it. Holy crap. Tony is at the top of his game, so for his next movie, he gets to pick his next co-star. What would you do? Uh, you pick your idol. That's exactly what he did. The movie was Operation Petticoat, and he said, I want to work with Cary Grant. They had met at a party a few years before, and Tony got so flustered that he introduced himself to Cary as Bernard Swartz. That's super relatable. Like, who the hell would not get all worked up meeting Cary Grant. Side note, he is my most requested party guest. There's a new book coming out on him. That is why I'm waiting. I'm not I'm not withholding trying to be a dick. This was Cary Grant's take on acting. He kind of likened it to wine. He said, when chilled, white wine should taste like a perfectly cool glass of water. So artful, it's artless. Now I kind of want some white wine. So let's grab a refill and meet me right back here. Okay, it's officially the 60s, and Tony becomes friends with the Kennedys because he's friends with the Lawfords. He didn't think it was a big deal, saying, everyone's ordinary, you find yourself in the same room together, and you either hit it off or you don't. Obviously, that changed when he went to the inauguration, but Tony was much better friends with Gross Balls Joe Kennedy. Joe told Tony, how can I make a pass at your wife when I like you as much as I like her? No one wants to bang you, Joe. It's not even gonna happen. Tony goes on to wonder who even cares that Joe and Gloria Swanson had an affair 60 years before. I don't know, Tony. I just had to wait through three chapters of you going back to the good old days when you were jizzing in your pants. I would much rather hear about two people having an affair, but that's just me. The set of Spartacus was a complete hot mess. Tony was supposed to work for 12 days. He was there for five months. He said he loved working with Stanley Kubrick, like that was his favorite director. And he said the only thing that happened between him and Lawrence Olivier was doing push-ups together because Larry needed help getting his arms to look better for their seduction scene. And they spent a lot of time bitching about how awful the method acting was. Like, they pretty much agreed it drove many actors to insanity. Alright, that's an interesting take. Janet Leigh never ever said anything bad about Tony Curtis. Like, she is a super class act. All she says about their breakup was that he wanted to be spontaneous and you can't really do that when you have kids. Duh. Tony does admit to not being a great dad to Kelly and Jamie Lee. Like, he's pretty absentee, honestly. He met his next wife, Christine Kaufman, on the set of Tara Bulba's. That is the movie where Tony plays Yul Brenner's son. Who was casting these movies? Everybody in the 60s clearly was on acid. Tony and Christina had two daughters together, and when Tony went to Germany to visit her family, she was a German actress, someone tried to kill him by shoving a rag into his tailpipe. Super cute, Nazis. Tony moved his family into the Owlwood estate. This is a massive house in the Homely Hills. It is still there, and you too could live in Tony Curtis's house for the low, low price of $115 million. Their marriage didn't last because she was unfaithful. Kind of feel like Tony probably wasn't clean on this, but whatever. Tony is kind of really similar to all the ladies we get to know. He just does not know when to stop getting married. Four days after his divorce goes through, he marries 
model, Leslie Allen. They have two sons together, and right when the second boy is born, Tony got custody of his girls from Christine Kaufman, and his oldest daughter, Kelly, comes to live with him. So for someone who wasn't a really great parent in the beginning, he has like five kids at home all at once. Boom. I will give him some credit. He never missed child support payments, unlike many of the other sperm donors that we've covered. In 1974, his mom died, and that is also the same year he starts doing coke. A lot of it. Like, this is probably why this party's gonna be a little shorter, because I don't really want to rehash all of his drug use tales. It's not cute to me. This is also why he made some super weird career choices. Apparently cocaine is very expensive. He did the movie Sextet with Mae West. He claims he did the movie because Cary Grant was in a movie with Mae West and Marilyn Monroe, and Tony Curtis could say he was in a movie with both those ladies. They're the only two who worked with both of those actresses, so in Tony Curtis's mind, it was like, ooh, big deal. Is it a big deal? Not really. May was 85 years old when she did this film. Tony says she was blind and pretty deaf during the filming, and he said that her daily routine was this. She would come to the set, do her hair, then get an enema, then have her makeup done. Why are you getting a daily enema? What's going on? Is that normal? This is what Time Magazine said about the movie. Probably one of my favorite reviews ever. Quote, it's so bad, it's fairly innocent, that it's good. An instant classic to be treasured by connoisseurs of the genre everywhere. In addition to Coke, Tony was drinking a lot more and popping pills. Finally, a friend checked him into the Betty Ford Center. This is where he realized the extent to which he resented his mom because she resented men. All throughout his first book, he wonders what is his rosebud? I think it's his brother Julius. Isn't that pretty clear? I think it is. Anyways, Tony got clean. He did some TV movies in the 80s. That's not an, a bad thing. Like, TV movies in the 80s were actually kind of good. And he was even nominated for an Emmy for playing David O. Selznick in the Scarlet O'Hara Wars. He got really into painting and was apparently pretty good. He got married in 1993. That lasted one year. Then in 1998, he married Jill Vandenberg. They had a rescue for slaughterhouse horses in Henderson, Nevada, which is where he passed away from a heart attack on September 29th, 2010. He is buried out in Henderson with a marker. Five months before, he totally rewrote his will, acknowledging all six of his children, yet writing them out of the will. Of course, there was a big lawsuit over this, and his wife, Jill, had a gigantic auction of all of his memorabilia a few years ago. There are two loose ends from his story that I will tie up. His little brother Robert was put into a home for the emotionally unstable, and he died at 52 years old in 1992. And one of Tony's sons, Nicholas, died of a heroin overdose at 23 in 1994. So should Tony Curtis come to our party? He kind of reminds me of Bradley Cooper or Ryan Gosling. Super attractive and charming, but still has douchebag tendencies that most people are okay with because nobody's perfect. I say he's in. He will literally flirt with everyone, which is gonna be great for some of the older gals that might show up. I mean, if he's getting with Zazu Pitts, anybody has a chance. And like I said in the beginning, just keep him away from the girls that we've buddied up with. I think it'll be just fine. Because Tony's story was so short, I will try and make the party longer next week. I just hope it's not another downer. I can't do this. They bum me out. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcast or Spotify or Anchor or however you're listening. See you next week.
Hollywood. 